When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, guys. It's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast. You're welcome with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to your welcome with Chael Sonnen exclusively available at podcastone.com and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Really excited to talk with longtime friend of the show, Sam Vicini of The Athletic, college basketball, NBA draft expert. It has been a very eventful time for both the NBA and college basketball, so there was a lot to get through with Sam. Unsurprisingly, we start out with Zion Williamson, the contours of his injury and the decision that he has to make. Also, how that affects Duke, his talented teammates, two of which are also likely top five draft picks, and Sam's fascinating new project, which is about to launch for The Athletic, plus some on the 2019 offseason. The two of us got into that. We're both very, very much in that vein. So we, we talked about that as well. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. Art of Sport, go to artofsport.com, use that real GM promo code for half off a trial kit and free shipping, which is great. And True Car, great place to sell or trade in your car. Conversation runs about an hour 15, lots of different topics. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yo, Danny, what's going on, man? Uh, it's exciting to be on the show. It's uh, just another day in Hollywood. It's Oscar weekend. So that's where, that's where my life is. And, you know, you've been to my apartment. It's literally right around the corner from where the Oscars happen. So I like can't go onto Hollywood Boulevard without it just being a total mess. Yeah. I'm sure that's a, a logistical challenge to, to deal with, but also pretty cool that you're, you're that close to it. Like, you know, it's, it's right, right there. So yeah, Laura and I, the first year we lived in this apartment, I think we've been here for three years now um we like walked down on oscar sunday and like just wanted to take a look at it and like see what like all of the craziness is like we saw them like setting up the stage like outside of the theater and everything like you they literally shut off hollywood boulevard like as of like last sunday so like between la brea and like another road down further on hollywood you can't drive uh this entire week so it's just crazy 
we've been dealing with a different kind of craziness in college basketball. I mean, there's been a a groundswell of discussion, and and I think justifiably so, on what's happening with Zion Williamson. His shoe exploded. I think that's the best way of putting it on Wednesday. For selfish reasons, it was immensely disappointing because it was a rare big college basketball game on a night where there was no NBA action. So I was sitting there. I actually was a little bit late to the game, so I missed the injury and I, I got in as they were kind of re- as they were kind of breaking it down. And it has led to a worthwhile, I guess, though ineffectual because I don't think Zion is listening to any of us, conversation about what he should do moving forward. And we don't need to get too much into that because I know I know you talked about it on Game Theory as well, but it is an interesting question. No, I, th- I question. think it's worth talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> Zion, first and foremost, like, l- let me just say this. Like, this is my take on the enti- entire deal. Like, Zion should do whatever the hell Zion wants to do. Like, if he wants to play, go play. If he wants to sit, he should sit the rest of the year. Like, this is a different circumstance. I think that people have conflated as well the idea of Zion sitting out the whole year and Zion sitting out from this point forward, probably in some sort of disingenuous way in order to, like, make points and counterpoints. Uh that can go to whatever narrative that they see fit. Um, I have generally been kind of frustrated by the conversation. Uh, I had Doug Gottlieb on my podcast, and the reason I dug on is because Doug disagrees with me on it, and I thought it would be a really great podcast. And I think Doug actually did a really great job of articulating his side of the spectrum where, you know, we talk about these things uh, from, you know, the hatred of the NCAA's perspective so, so often that, you know, Doug wanted to talk about it from the good that the NCAA does for people. And, you know, I think Doug has a very fair point, and I don't think he's one of those disingenuous people who argues uh, just to make a point and have a take and everything like that. Um, so if you want to hear, like, a bigger breakdown of it, go there. Uh, we talked about all of the issues involved with it from amateurism to transfers and, you know, you know, reshaping the NCAA, et cetera. But ultimately what it comes down to for me is uh, Zion is in a very unique situation now where he is very clearly the number one overall pick. The only thing that is going to stop him from being the number one overall pick is if during his medical reports, something comes back that says, you know, there is a degenerative condition here or – you know, if he has a Achilles injury or a, uh, like micro fracture knee injury, like that saps his athleticism long term or that even raises the question of sapping his athleticism long term for doctors. So that aspect of it is pretty set in stone. There's also the aspect of it that he is in a much better position now than he was entering the season. Entering the season, he was like a top five pick. He was a guy that, you know, I think I had at number two on my board. Some people had him as low as five. Some people had him as low as seven, I think, even. Um, it, it was a very real question where he was going to be selected. And that's no longer the case. And additionally, by playing at Duke and by letting people know of his athleticism and the exploits that he regularly performs and bringing that to a more general audience, because obviously Zion had the incredible audience beforehand, but I think it was largely younger people. By bringing that forward into the larger audience, into 
35 to 50 year olds, right? As opposed to people that are our age and younger, Danny, like it has helped his brand immeasurably and it has helped his negotiating position for a potential shoe deal immensely. Now I've seen the argument that like, if he doesn't play the rest of the season, he's like capping his shoe deal at what it is now versus, you know, maybe if he goes to the final four, it continues to grow and continues to escalate. I don't know if I believe in that. Honestly, I think he's just so at the stage now where there is going to be the biggest bidding war among shoe companies that we have seen probably since LeBron. Well, um, and I, I'm happy you brought up LeBron because my comparison here yeah. would be this is like LeBron in the dunk contest where anything less than that sort of an incandescent performance for Zion, you know, being most outstanding player in the Final Four, something like that, to me, that would lower his value. I think I think that's the, the way I'm interpreting right now is his star would not fall from from this, and it can't really rise much more than it has. I mean, what what more is there for him to do? And yeah, I, and he's already, you know, the, I guess there is a level of accessibility that, you know, you, you talked about how he's, he's reaching a different group now. Well, March Madness is connected with all sports fans, so it does break beyond college right. basketball and the draft. But I think in terms of a shoe deal, you're already projecting it out. You're not saying how famous is this guy right now. You're saying how likely is he to sell shoes as an NBA player? And by that point, you're you're not pricing in as much the 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 immediate lip lip. That's kind of like the parallel to me of the people who say that oh player X got drafted because higher because they sell tickets. And it's like well you know who sells tickets? Good basketball players sell tickets. You know just because a guy was popular in college, if he ends up being bad, he's not going to sell as many tickets as an actually good player. Right, that's exactly right. And selling shoes is obviously a very different deal, right? Because you know, right now, I would say that Kyrie Irving and Paul George have two of the most popular shoes on the market. I would say that, you know, what are they maybe, you know, Kyrie's, I think, are probably in the top three. And then uh, what we want to say, Paul George, top five, maybe, right, in terms of shoes? That seems reasonable to me. I think you'd know far better than I would. Yeah, uh, probably in that range. And this is among active players, right? So I think that you know, Kyrie certainly doesn't have like top three brand recognition in terms of just being a basketball player. Paul George, while he's having a top five season this year in terms of his play on the basketball floor, probably does not have top five brand recognition as a basketball player. So more goes into it than, you know, just the name behind the shoe, but the brand and name behind the shoe plays the biggest part of it. And I think that, Zion is at the stage now where I agree with you. I don't think that it's really going to make a difference. There's going to be such a bidding war just from like an economic perspective. Like there are going to be, there's only one Zion Williamson in the last, let's say 15 years of doing this in terms of just a marketability factor. And uh, there are, you know, more shoe companies in the market now than there have ever been with the addition of Puma, New Balance, Under Armour. Uh, Adidas and Nike will still certainly make the biggest, you know, swings at this, I would imagine. Zion played on the Adidas circuit when he was younger. There's been a case made that I think is pretty reasonable that Nike now is going to have to shell out over the top after what happened with their shoes that he was wearing to try and get him to sign with them in order to rehab their brand or something like that. Uh, I think that might be a reasonable case as well. So we're already at the stage where regardless of where his final four stuff goes, 
I think he's just such an incredible marketing asset that people are going to go way over the top. He's going to make more than just about any player, I think, on a shoe deal in the NBA. There may be like five guys that make more than him, but it's not going to be more than that. Yeah, I, and and if you're that high, then it doesn't really make sense that maybe there's a slight level that he can go up, but without establishing as an NBA player, I think there's a, a, a ceiling to it. And with, with Zion, I, I think that his decision here is fundamentally different than a lot of the other ones that have been discussed before because he is dealing with a lot less risk. I mean, he is the number one pick. Yeah, sure, the catastrophic thing is there, just like it is for everybody else. But this is not a circumstance like Trey Young's name came up because he came out in support of, of Zion sitting out. And, you know, if Trey Young had gotten hurt, he would have fallen significantly in the draft, even the, as well as he played during the early part of the season at Oklahoma. He wasn't the surefire number one pick or anything like that he he ended up falling to five after all and he could have fallen a lot further Michael Porter Jr. is a good example of that though the back issue is very different there that's the kind of thing I think that you'd be talking about that they'd find in Zion's medical so I am always of the idea of you know hey do whatever you want but I've been really thinking about it I don't know if it's you know being in my 30s and going to my college campus over the weekend but I I was sitting there going well he's not going to have another chance at this and so if he wants to do it, more power to him because you can't, you know, when you're 25, you can't say, well, crap, I want to go back and play that year out at Duke. That that opportunity is gone. So I, I think he is, obviously, if he, I will ne- not blame him. I will not criticize him at all if he just says, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to take that chance. I've proven what I need to prove. But I think he could look back with some regret just saying, hey, I had this amazing opportunity. There was there was a risk, but there isn't that much left of the season. So why not just let it rip? Yeah, and, you know, that seems to be his personality. I, I think that he is very likely to play just because everything that he has said publicly, everything that, like, Intel comes back on him, right? Uh, everything is just so positive. You know what I mean? Every, everything is so uh, driven toward his competitive nature that I agree with you. I think he's going to play. Um, you know what, though? At the end of the day, like I think that there is a very valid point to what a lot of um, you know NBA players have been saying to him. Like, look, you at 19, DeMarcus Cousins said this yesterday, like you at 19, you might think that this is important and, and you know, maybe it is important to you at the time, but you know, the ultimate goal here is to play in the NBA. And, you know, if you wanted to make a statement to the NCAA about how bullshit the NCAA is, which it is, it's an organization that does a lot of good for a lot of kids, no question. Like, it really does help a lot of um, kids that are going to UNC Greensboro and Furman and, you know, this year even Cal. But, like, at the end of the day, it's bullshit for the elite players that are worth so much more than what the school can give to them as, uh, you know, even a place like Duke where you're getting incredible training, you're getting access to incredible facilities, you're getting Coach K access, you're getting a nutritionist probably, you're getting um, like the works. You're living at Duke for six months and it's fucking unbelievable, right? But it's still not worth what Zion Williamson is worth to that school. And that part of it is unfair. And if he wanted to make a statement saying, hey, this is unfair to us elite athletes, I think that that would be great. I I would applaud that decision. But I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, it's the worst thing in the world if he does either. Yeah, I think that's a healthy way of putting it. And 
I wonder which way it'll go. Completely justified decisions on a lot of different directions. And I think that's a, a good way to talk about his teammates at Duke, who now are going to, we, we don't know how long they're going to be looked at through a different lens, but I mean, they already had the game against North Carolina. And we'll see how they handle this shift in role, shift without, you know, the the best player, the best athlete in the country, in college basketball at least, let's say, on their team? So yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think it's going to go well, to be honest, because outside of R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, they have no one else who can shoot on that roster, like period. Uh, Alex O'Connell is like a 6'6 shooter white dude type that is hitting 34% from three right now. Trey Jones, who is their other potential first round pick, who I think is really good. Like I think he's going to be a nice backup point guard in the NBA. Uh, he can't shoot. He has a shoulder injury right now. And uh, even before then, the jump shot was the biggest question coming in on him. There are big guys that they play. Marquise Bolden, Javon Delorier, um, even Dave Robinson's kid who comes in occasionally, those guys can't shoot. And the worst of it all is Jack White. Uh, you know, they're six foot seven Australian kind of combo forwardy, you know, guy that came in and made shots early in the season. He's missed his last 26 threes. So there's no confidence there. RJ Barrett has no confidence in his teammates. It seems like to me, just watching him, uh, he doesn't really ever pass to them other than Cam Reddish. So, uh, it's a problem. And I think it's going to be a real struggle without Zion Williamson. And now they get into this unusual circumstance that we never would have expected to see with Duke, where you get the players get a little bit of maybe the benefit of the doubt because they'll be playing with superior talent at the next level, you know, or at least better fitting talent. And that's always something that's really hard to evaluate with players. I remember going back to Alex Len when he was at Maryland. I would get so viscerally angry because he didn't have guards that could get him the ball. And so you're sitting there going, well, how do I, how do I calibrate and estimate his value from this juncture? And I mean, Duke is still an immensely talented team in terms of, you know, McDonald's All-Americans and RSCI rankings and all that kind of stuff, but it is a different constituted group. And so that changes the evaluation process for RJ, for Cam Reddish and, and for Trey Jones as well. Yeah. You know, uh, Cam Reddish is going to be really interesting. Uh, because this is a really, really great opportunity, I think, for people like myself who throughout the year have been saying, hey, I would love to see what Trey Jones or what uh, Cam Reddish looks like away from Zion Williamson and in a scheme where he is allowed to handle the ball more, allowed to attack more off the dribble, because that was his game in high school. And when you saw him at the end of the, uh, or throughout the entire North Carolina game, you got to see a little bit more of what he was able to do. I think he had 27 points. Uh, you saw him in the second half of the Florida State game where Zion missed after a guy poked his uh, eye or after someone poked Zion's eye and he missed the second half of that game. Cam Reddish was really, really good in that game. Again, so I'm going to be really interested to see what Cam Reddish we get over the course of the next couple games. I'm excited too. And Reddish, a guy who has a lot of talent and who there are questions and, and I, I don't, I'm not comparing them as players at all. I, I don't, A, I don't know Cam Reddish's game well enough and B, I mean, even then it would be a weird parallel with somebody like Brandon Ingram. And what I mean by that is different players succeed and fail with dramatically different surrounding talent. And so I like knowing whether a guy works as a, you know, big fish in a small pond, small fish in a big pond, or anything in between. And getting multiple data points on that question in a single season is useful. 
Yeah, no question. And having a chance to see, uh, you know, a guy in a lot of different circumstances, uh, is fascinating. Now, the problem is that, you know, Zion doesn't really add a lot from a shooting perspective, right? He has some gravity, no question, just in terms of you really have to get up on him. Uh, otherwise you're just letting him get downhill. And once he gets downhill, he's a runaway freight train. You can't stop him. So you really do have to kind of guard up on him. Otherwise you're just screwed defensively. But we're not going to get to see RJ play in a circumstance that allows for terrific spacing throughout the course of this entire year. And that's something that I'd be really fascinated to see because uh, right now what he's doing is unbelievable, I think. He's averaging like 23, 22 points a night, seven rebounds, four assists a night. He's the only guy at a high major school to put up that like those thresholds of numbers since Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway was at Memphis. It was like sort of a high major, but it's really the closest statistical comp I can come up with. And Penny did it at 21, whereas RJ is doing it at 18 right now. So when you look at what RJ has done so far this year, I think that we're just underrating in a way the value of production in large part because he gets it relatively inefficiently. And I think he gets it relatively inefficiently because he's not surrounded by pieces that accentuate his game in a like specific way. So I'll be just very interested to see how RJ translates to the next level. And RJ has concerns. Like I, I don't know if he is a star basketball player at the next level. Like he has been very, I think he's been selfish this year, despite the assist numbers. I think that uh, there is some real concern about him getting separation against elite level defenders. He is not the world's best shooter. I have real worries about the way his shot translates to the pull up games significantly, unless he's going like left to right back, you know, to get separation for his shot. Similarly to how, uh, you know, Lonzo ball can get separation going right to left backstep uh, and get the shot off. RJ is just the opposite way because he's a left-handed shooter. I, I don't know if that shot translates because it's far out in front of his face and it has kind of a low release point. So I think that you're really going to have to do a lot of uh, mechanical tweaks to his jump shot. So I have concerns, but I also just look at him. He's uh, a lot more athletic than what I think people give him credit for. He's an incredible mentality. He's an incredibly hard worker. Um, I think he's going to be pretty good defensively at the end of the day, even though Luke May kind of burned him uh, against North Carolina. That's a matchup that he's never really had to deal with before. Uh, just someone who is as skilled and as uh, heady as Luke May is and is physically stronger than RJ as Luke May is. That'll change as RJ gets older and gets stronger. He just brings a lot of skills to the table, including being able to finish at the basket. So I'm I'm generally a fan of what RJ brings while people kind of shit on him all the time. Because I'm sure that you see that, right? Like people, NBA people who watch him for the first time are kind of like, who the, who is this kid? Like, why, why are people excited about him? It, it does happen. And Barrett is a challenge for me in a similar way, though not the same type of player, as somebody like Jason Tatum. And I've taken a lot of heat at various moments for being lower on Jason Tatum. And what there's a specific reason why. And that is because I think about players in terms of their kind of their archetype role on a successful team. Now, there are a lot of guys who can be in a bigger role on a, on a you know, an 
lottery team. I don't care. That's a very different conversation. It's not a conversation for me that is probably worth having. So you get into somebody like Tatum, and and RJ Barrett could be in this conversation. We'll see how comfortable he's with the ball in his hands, which is basically if he is good enough to be the like the best offensive player or like the lead scorer on a successful team. And so if he can do that, then he is an immensely valuable guy, even with like ignoring the defensive side of the ball. I mean, you could draw, I mm-hmm. mean, Durant is kind of the archetype here, but you can, you can go lower down on the scale and it's still the same basic story. It, what, what I find fascinating about RJ Barrett is what if he's kind of the level below that? You know, where he could maybe be that on an unsuccessful team, but maybe you want somebody above him. Now, there are a lot of great point guards in the league now. There are a lot of other guys with amazing offensive skill sets where you can make it work if he ends up on a team with one of those guys. But will his game be simpatico with that? All of those type mm-hmm. of questions, I think are really fascinating and that's where you start to get into the downside risk and i i don't i haven't watched enough barrett to really know how that part of it will sink in but i think that is the most important salient question that i've when i've watched him as i've gone okay once you slot him in on the totem pole, how does this game fit in with that slot? Yeah, no question. Uh, this is something I talked about at the end of the podcast with Gottlieb uh, on what is that Thursday. Uh, he, he does have that same concern. Uh, this is something that there has been a concern about going back a little bit of a ways with RJ because of that uh, selfishness and the – Desire. He has like a Kobe-like mentality in terms of the way that he wants to just dominate the game and destroy his opponents. And I don't think that, you know, that there's a downside to that, but I would personally rather have someone that has that mentality than not have someone that has that mentality, especially whenever there is such a high skill level there already. And there, there really is a lot of the Jason Tatum conversation there, uh, even down to the fact that like RJ went and worked out with Drew Hamlin uh, last summer. Uh, there, there really is a lot of the Jason Tatum discussion there. He's known as a good kid and incredibly hard worker. And you just have to assume that he'll uh, at 18 years old as incredibly young as he is iron out some of the deficiencies in his game, because even the deficiencies in his game, like the fact that again, like I, I don't like the way he plays in terms of the way that he pounds the ball and stops the ball. He does have great vision. He really makes high level passes like somewhat regularly. It's how he's averaging four assists a game. He just chooses not to. And I, you know, it could be, maybe it's not a lack of trust in his teammates like I've floated. Maybe it's, um, just a desire to trust in himself in such a significant way. I, I don't really have an answer to that necessarily, but. Uh, it's something that shows up, but it's something that's fixable. It's not like he doesn't have the floor vision to fix it. Yeah, I, I wonder how that is going to shake out, whether we'll get real meaningful information on that between now and the end of the year. That might just be something you can't even really see in workouts, that you just kind of go into the year. And I wanted to float a comparison by you, especially because I find this interesting because you and I disagreed on him as a prospect. But when I saw R.J. Barrett for the first time, what he reminded me of, and this is going to put a shiver down some people's spines, is like a better version of Josh Jackson. And what's yeah. interesting about that is, because you were higher on Josh Jackson than I was, but I don't <clears throat> necessarily mean that as somebody who was lower on Josh Jackson as like this huge criticism, because the theory of Josh Jackson was, and to a degree is, a pretty intriguing, capable player. Yeah, the problem with Josh is that he just can't shoot. Like, RJ is already like a 34% three-point shooter, right? Josh 
and like, I think that's probably actually pretty close to what his level is as a shooter. Like, I think he has pretty good touch. I think that he has the ability to work on his jump shot, even if he's not necessarily going to be uh, an elite level pull up shooter, which, you know, separates guys from being, you know, superstar level player to potentially being like a borderline all-star type. You know what I mean? With RJ, the touch is there, whereas with Josh, I don't really see it as being there. Uh, but you're right. There is some of that there. I would also just kind of note that I trust the work ethic and judgment with RJ a little bit more. Um, just doesn't make nearly the regular poor decisions that Josh Jackson did. But there, there is something there in terms of like 6'7", 200 pounds, not overly long, not like the world's most elite athlete, but a good athlete. Uh, th- there is a lot there, I think. Lots more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first a message from our friends at betonline.ag. This is a particularly fun time of the NBA season because now that the trade deadline is right before the All-Star break, you get this opportunity now with a little bit of time before the full-on sprint to get a sense of what these teams are. And so whether it's your favorite team or the most important around the league, you can engage with that with betonline.ag both before the game and they have pretty awesome in-game. If you get a feel for it early on and say, hey, I think I know where this is going, you can try it out. And the best way to do that, you go to betonline.ag and you use that podcast one promo code, because if you do that, not only does it tell them you came from us, but you get a 50% sign up bonus. And if you're into college basketball, if you're into hockey, which is going strong as well, you can check that out too. And lots of fun stuff. I was just checking their futures pages. If you're looking for certain teams to make the playoffs or not make the playoffs. So it's fun. One of the few real negative bets long-term that you can make, you can check that out too. So again, that is betonline.ag. And then you use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Unless there's something more you want to say on the Duke guys, I think this is uh, a good way to go into the fascinating project that you've been working on over the last little while. And the reason why this podcast that you were recording it on Friday is coming out Saturday because we wanted to queue this up more with the launch. Yeah. So, uh, for like, you've probably wondered why I haven't been writing all that much recently. It's because, uh, starting on Monday, I have like just this insane project that I've been working on where, um, I talked to 50 assistant coaches around the country. I think from 25 of the 32 conferences in college basketball, um, I had over 1800 minutes of conversations. Uh, I, by the time, like I have a huge document of transcribed, uh, notes. Uh, it had over 60,000 words of transcribed, uh, statements and evaluations on prospects because the idea was in exchange for anonymity, uh, I just asked them to give me their scouting report on every NBA prospect that they've played this season. And by NBA prospect, I mean that I have talked to them about 227 prospects around college basketball. So like, I'm not just talking about this year. I'm talking like down the road, like guys that I've seen that I like. I'm talking mid-major guys, everything. So um, they gave me the lowdown on everyone that they have played this year, basically. And over the course of next week, I've already filed 10 stories. I'll probably have something in the range of 15 stories coming out, uh, essentially allowing them the floor to – 
break down the guys that they've played this season and then kind of giving my take on all of it. It's a really cool idea. It's one of those things that every once in a while, granted, we're not in the same exact part of this business where I think of an idea and I go, yeah, but it's not hard. It's too hard to pull that off. You know, like that sort of like there, there's a, there are walls logistically that you run into for various things, talking to people, the amount of time it would take, everything else. And what I really enjoy about this is I think you saw that too and just went, meh, I'll do it anyway. Yeah, that was kind of part of it. Um, another part of it is just, you know, the company that we work for, The Athletic, is, you know, willing to not have me write essentially for two weeks um, like that. That's not something that other people get the opportunity to do. And, you know, I'm very thankful to them for that uh, for that opportunity because they saw the idea as being pretty good as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm just very, very, uh, very lucky to work for a company that sees value in the same things that I do. Uh, you know, it's, it, it was an interesting project and, you know, I'll podcast about it on Monday. I have a guest queued up as well where we're going to kind of talk about a lot of different things and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll have that guest, uh, guess which breakdown refers to which prospect basically. That, that's interesting. Uh, in terms of that project, I, I know that for justifiable reasons, they're going to be secretive. Is there anything I'll kind of loop, open the floor to you to go where you want with it that you think doesn't violate, you know, the spirit of what you want to keep under wraps that would be like kind of enticing for people to get into where you're going with this? Well, you know, I kind of I've broken it out and like there are some players where I've gotten such interesting stuff that I've broken it out just like into a single story on them. Like Nasir Little, I've gotten such polarizing feedback and such interesting feedback that I decided to just break him out into his own story. Um, should come as no surprise that the college coaches that have scouted Nasir Little have very little in terms of, uh, you know, a consensus opinion on him. But I found it very interesting that basically every team that has played North Carolina this season, um, they loved Kobe White. They, they thought Kobe White was going to be absolutely awesome at some point. Maybe he tries to return to school. Maybe he decides to go pro. Um, it's I, I, That was one where like I was so taken aback that I decided I have to write about this and like I have to give them the floor to explain what they like about him because Kobe is a guy that – you know, if you watch him, you would think that he is the player that coaches get very frustrated by. He has turnover problems. He uh, can get – he takes poor shots sometimes. He's gotten a lot better at that throughout the course of the season. But every coach that I talk to is just like, no, he's going to figure it out. He's so much bigger and faster than what you think basically. And, you know, that that was one that really, really stood out to me. And I like that the format allows for the diversity of opinion, and I would, I'm guessing embraces it as well. And that is a part of prospect analysis and NBA player analysis, too, that sometimes it, it's so weird because sometimes we get a little hive-mindy and, you know, like the people you read, the people you talk to, you kind of, you, a lot of times you even self-select for people who see the game similarly. And then other times the differences get ramped up because that makes for good radio, makes for good TV. And so you run into these ideas of, uh, like where you want to give every everybody and every concept the respect it deserves but also you know make sure that that it is the respect it deserves not like over overly fawning to everybody because that's a challenge too 
Right. No question. And yeah, you know, I think that's the good thing about the nature of this project is that for more positive people, they want to um, expound upon what makes players good. And some pe- some coaches are extraordinarily critical in the way that they evaluate players and evaluate um, even players on their own roster. I, I didn't. Uh, the nature of this project was I didn't ask them to evaluate their own players. I asked them to evaluate players that they have played this season. Um, so it was, it's just a very, uh, very interesting idea to get through all of these different type of guys and get a chance to, um, connect with a lot of people and, uh, you know, learn more about what specifically college coaches look for. Because honestly, what I found from this is, you know, I don't mean to say anything negative about NBA, NBA scouts or anything like that. I think that they do do a really good job, but, um, I, I have found over the years generally that, you know, college coaches who have played guys tend to have a better feel for what that player's game is. Now, NBA scouts obviously have more of an idea in their mind in terms of what they're looking for with what translates. But, uh, I am, you know, cognizant of the fact that, and just from doing this over the many years that I have now, uh, the college coaches bring such an interesting perspective to the table of NBA draft analysis. How do you think that this experience, without getting specific unless you want to, has affected the way that you have thought about these players? Because really, it seems like it's a mix of being a vessel for all of this input because there wasn't really a way to do that. But I'm sure that getting this volume of material from these people who know the game really well has, you know, calibrated, has adjusted the way that you've thought about these guys. You know, it's interesting because like most of them don't end up being interviews, right? They just end up being conversations because, you know, I've seen so many of these guys doing what I do. And, you know, I've seen them from such a young age, um, like, you know, Zion Williamson, you know, I've seen him since he was 15 years old, uh, like grow and mature, maybe 16 years old. Um, like I've just seen how their games have grown and matured that, you know, I can carry on a real high level conversation with these coaches. And, you know, we end up just bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, sometimes they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they go, you know, uh, you know, we didn't really find that. I can see where you're coming from. Or they'll just say, no, I don't agree with that. Like in Nasir Little's case, I still have some hope for Nasir Little. And I talked to multiple coaches that are like, no, he's not very good. So like it's, it's, it definitely, I don't want to say it changes the way you look at things because ultimately like the way that I go about evaluating things is the way that I go about evaluating things. And I think it's part of what makes me successful in the job that I have right now. Um, you know, I have a perspective, you know, maybe guys weren't as high on Brandon Clark at Gonzaga as I was, but, uh, you know, uh, in Brandon's case, like I trust my eye that uh, I think he's just going to be able to figure it out and, you know, having talked to him and that's the other part of this as well. Like, you know, I have access to these kids sometimes that college coaches don't always have access to them just by nature of being in the media and getting a chance to talk to them and get to know them a little bit more. Like if they didn't, if the coaches didn't recruit that kid, they're not really going to know him on a personal level. So it, it certainly is more data to input into your evaluation, but it's not, it doesn't override what you think and where your perspective comes from. Right. And 
in a lot of these circumstances, I'm guessing these are people that either you did or could have talked to prior. It's just that it wasn't done in the same format. You know, like there are a lot of people, like I have this, for example, in the NBA circles more often because that's just who I run with, where there are people that I've talked with about stuff, but getting them on the record about it would be a very different thing. But their input, you know, was something that I considered. It wasn't necessarily the definitive criteria or anything like that, but it was something that was a, a background component in my analysis even before. So this is, could be, and you'll, you obviously correct me if I'm wrong, that that also means that it's not as big an adjustment because maybe this is variance of conversations that would have happened otherwise. Yeah, no, and like part of this project is going out and getting to know people as well. Like I want to get out of my comfort zone. I want to get out of um, just the singular circles I run in, right? Like I want to be able to talk to people of different backgrounds, people of different um, – People in different conferences, you know, all, all across the country. It's just a very interesting uh, project. And, you know, I reached out to so many more coaches than actually got back to me. Some of them were willing to talk. Some of them weren't. And that's totally cool. That's, you know, it's something that happens and is, you know, I don't begrudge them for not getting back to me. I understand that what I'm asking is kind of a random thing, but um, yeah, it's, you know, when you get a chance to give guys anonymity, I think that you really give them a chance to open up to you a little bit. And then you get to, they get to know that you understand what's happening on the basketball floor and you get to understand that, uh, you know, these guys, they often look at the NBA from, you know, the same perspective as you. And, you know, they're they're not involved in it every day. They're not sitting here evaluating scouting kids every day, but they're fans of the NBA. They want to see how these kids, you know, project and everything like that. It's it's just a really fun project to work on. It was awesome. I can imagine. Uh, I'm very excited right now because uh, Syracuse is a five-and-a-half-point underdog at home against Duke. Uh, yeah, that's... Ooh, I'm excited. And we know, and we know Zion's well, – we don't know, but it seems pretty likely that Zion's not going to play in that game. Zion is not playing, yeah. Yeah, so even, even if he comes back, it's just not going to be that soon. That's the way this works. And lots more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first the message from Art of Sport. Art of Sport works around a very common sense idea, but one that really needed to be executed, and that's that we put a lot of thought into what we wear and what we put into our body, and it's – designed to make you help look and feel your best. So what you put on your skin every day should do exactly the same thing. And what Art of Sport is aiming for and what they do is better for you products that perform better, combining the innovation and best science with the guidance of world-class athletes to take skincare to the next level for everyone. And I like the promotion that they're doing because it is a great way to test things out. So what you do is you go to artofsport.com and you use the promo code REALGM, and that gives you 50% off a trial kit plus free shipping. And the trial kit includes hair and body wash, it includes a body bar, which I really like, and deodorant. I've been very impressed with their deodorant. It works well. I like the way it smells. And you get a free sunscreen, SPF 50. It's reef safe, weightless, and hydrates your skin. So you can check all of those things 
out and find out which products you like the best. I've been incredibly impressed with the full gamut that I had. It's the, the body bar is the one that I use deodorant in particular. Those two really do stand out, but you'll find what, what you value most, what you like most. And it's a great way to make your skin smell, look, and feel its best. So again, go to real jam as the promo code on artofsport.com, 50% off the trial kit and free shipping. That trial kit is deodorant, hair and body wash, body bar, and free sunscreen. Artofsport.com. Check it out. Also have a message from TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number. Watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local true car certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you bring your car in and they will check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. I'm trying to kind of place us within the college basketball season. So we're still a few weeks away from the college tournaments, which then runs straight into the NCAA tournament. What are you looking for, let's say, in the first part of that timeline? So before conference tournaments start, is there anything? I mean, you've already seen basically everybody that's in the mix a lot of times already. But is there anything in particular, like any players that you're looking at? or specific situations, I guess maybe the Duke one takes the precedence because something actually changed that you're looking for in the next, you know, two, three weeks. Honestly, this seems like a cop out. I don't mean it to be, but like I'm looking at all of them. And the reason that I'm specifically looking at all of them is that this draft is so difficult to project right now in large part, in my opinion, because there is such variance evaluator to evaluator on the guys they like versus the guys that they don't like. Like Casey Apollo, for instance, like I think he's like a, you know, right around 15 or so. I've talked to guys that think he's like end of the first round. Um, Bull Bull, you could tell me Bull Bull goes 10. You could tell me he goes 35 and I wouldn't be surprised right now. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, Kevin Porter, his, you know, struggled over the course of the last, you know, since he returned, uh, to try and make an impact over the last month. So, uh, after a great start against teams that weren't particularly great, uh, you know, evaluators don't really know what to do with them. Uh, you know, like Kobe White is someone that I'm looking at that I would love to see what kind of consistency Kobe White can bring to the table. I would like to see if Trey Jones can find a way to make an impact in half court offense. I would like to figure out if Brandon Clark can continue to shoot the ball. Um, how, how, how concerned, how concerned should I be about Admiral Schofield's defense right now? Because if you watch the Kentucky game, uh, he got torched by PJ Washington. PJ Washington just absolutely took him to task every single night. PJ, PJ Washington's another guy. PJ Washington is, uh, in the midst of an incredible heater for Kentucky right now. He's averaging like 20 points and eight rebounds over the last month. Has he made a real sizable leap to where he should be considered a, you know, late lottery type potential pick? I think that that's like not totally out of the question. And then there are all the young guys too. Naz Reed, uh, Jalen Smith, 
Um, you know, you, you can look at, you know, like I said, Trey Jones and Kobe White and Jalen Horde and Simi Shitu, like there are Charles Bassey. There are all these prospects that are there and still trying to figure things out. So there, there really is, there's so much to figure out still in this class. Nothing is really set in stone outside of the top four guys or so. And by that, I mean Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett, Cameron Reddish and John Morant. Or, yeah, John Morant. So, it's just so, so difficult to tell right now what's going to happen. That same constraint and conceit is why figuring out who's really rising is tough because they're rising on some boards and maybe they're rising overall. But it's it's really, I think, about what conversations a player has worked themselves into. Like for me, just the way that I hear people talking about him, that's been a really interesting part of the story with Brendan Clark. So Clark, yeah. you know, fascinating defender. You know, we'll see what his offensive role is and whether that defense, whether he can make that sort of a defensive impact or any semblance of it at the NBA level, because I mean, he's been an absolute monster at moments when I've seen him so far this year. And so it's really, I think that's really the, the question this year is very different. You know, it's not like, oh man, that guy, you know, that guy was at 30 and now he's at 20. It's more, which conversation are you in? Yeah. And like the difficult part about that even is like, look at someone like Bruno Fernando, who's been really good for Maryland this year. Some teams just have different valuations on bigs right now. Like some teams, if you, if they think you're more of a rotation big versus like, you know, a potential top 15 big in the NBA, they just don't really see a whole lot of value drafting that type of player before like number 25 in the draft because you can get bigs on the open market right now for the minimum that can give you minutes. Um, so like if you're not getting a guy that can legit be an above average starting center in the NBA at some point, they kind of look at it as what's the point in drafting this guy because this position is so cluttered. Other organizations, they really value the center position still. They still really value big men. They think that, you know, maybe if the Golden State era ends, um, with Kevin Durant going elsewhere that the big man becomes slightly more valuable to organizations. So it's, it's just a fascinating, fascinating draft from so many different perspectives. I was really hoping when you started with other organizations, you were just going to go are the Portland trailblazers because that, that's, that was the one that I thought of when you're like, he's still value, but obviously paying Nurkic though. Nurkic got less money per season than, I mean, many of us expected. Then they, they of course drafted Zach Collins and then recently signed Dennis Canner, who they had previously signed to that offer sheet. And, but, but you know what about that, uh, Nurkic contract? That deal looks great right now. It does. Because he's it made a real does. Like, and, and, so does, made... and so does Miles Turner's. I mean, Miles Turner, yeah. he's taken a big step defensively. And where we're drawing the line, I mean, also, let's see how those guys fare in the playoffs. I mean, that's going to be a big question mark yeah. for both of them. And the center position is just such a cauldron right now because even some of those best guys are going to be in challenging positions. And another example of this, who signed this past summer to a contract that I, we both felt was team-friendly is Clint Capella. And Capella's missed a bunch of time recently, so we'll, we'll see how he looks. And this hasn't been nearly as good a year for him as last year was. But he got paid more like he was coming off of this year than that he was coming off of what was a really nice season in 2018-19. Or sorry, 17-18. Yeah. So, I mean, like Clint Capella, I think that Capella deal is probably going to be fine. Um, at the end of the day, I think it, it really might end up being still like a pretty good value for Houston because he, in that scheme with an aging Chris Paul and James Harden, 
can be so valuable as a pick and roll dive big man who can defend five positions. I think that deal is probably going to be fine. Um, but it is, it is just fascinating. There are so many shifting, conflicting views on the way that big men are valued in the NBA right now that it makes it, uh, it makes it tough to project guys like Bruno Fernando, uh, Jalen McDaniels, Daniel Gafford. Daniel Gafford has gone, he's averaging like 18 and 10 right now. And has like dropped on people's draft boards because there's just a real question of what his role is at the next level. Is he someone that can actually uh, make an impact or is he just a rotation guy? You know, he was probably a guy that if he comes out last year, probably a top 20 pick in the draft. I would say this year he's probably more of just like your run of the mill first rounder. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see where all of this ends up going. Something else I wanted to discuss with you that I find fascinating about this class in particular is that even though it often takes them some time, point guards, primary ball handlers, if you want to draw a distinction, which I actually absolutely think is 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 the more salient thing, you know, because if you're yeah. six foot seven and can run an offense, that's just as valuable, if not more valuable, than a six foot two guy who does the same thing. And this class, from what I have seen and from the boards I've looked at, including your own, seems to be remarkably weak on that front. And that has a few significant effects. So one is that those are players who provide more value as backups, I think, than centers do, because a good backup one eventually is is incredibly valuable. I mean, we've seen this on a lot of teams in in the past, either because they need to step into a starting role or just because 48 good minutes in that role is, is essential. Then the second part is, and this ties in with the Markel Fultz trade, which happened at the deadline, if teams see it the same way, even though you're not necessarily, I mean, if you're smart, you're not drafting a guy unless you're drafting Chris Paul to have him help you right away, that affects the way that teams should be thinking about their future at the position. Because if you're not getting a good bite at that apple this year, there are teams like the Orlando Magic, if they hadn't gotten Markel Fultz, that should be trying to get that bite elsewhere. Yeah, it's so hard to evaluate this point guard class if only because there are there's one right like we know John Morant is probably going to go somewhere in the top five. Darius Garland is an incredible talent that missed all but four games in two minutes this year because he game and then got hurt. Um, I think Garland is a legit top ten talent in this draft. I think that a team. Like you said, like in Orlando, uh, even with the Markel Fultz seal or a, uh, a, you know, a Phoenix, if they end up dropping a little bit on draft night or on lottery night, even a Chicago Bulls or a New York Knicks, even in my opinion, depending on what they think of Dennis. I can't tell if Dennis is like a real, uh, super asset for them yet or if they think of him as like, let's just move him down the road. Uh, I think Darius Garland's going to be in play for a lot of teams in the top 10. Uh, he, Tremendous in the four games that he played in college. And then there are a lot of question marks. Like, I like Kobe White. I think he's big. He really just might be a, like, first guy off the bench, though. Um, Trey Jones, I, I think, really might be just like a backup. Do you think Ty Jerome is a point guard? I don't. I think he's more of a secondary ball handler that you run off the screens constantly. Um, Quentin Grimes just totally being, like, dreadful this year. His significantly diminish the lead guard depth in this class. And then you have guys like Carson Edwards, Shamori Pons, some older, smaller scorers that are interesting, but probably not quite there in terms of value yet. So I I don't really have a great gauge in terms of how to evaluate all of these like point guards that are 
just going to be in the mix. It's going to be hit or miss. Every team is going to have a very different evaluation from the other team. The NBA is also in a very strange position at point guard because there aren't that many teams that have a glaring need, but I think we're also getting closer. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer to the precipice of this mass of guys that are in their late 20s, early 30s that are eventually going to become less playable, less dynamic than they are right now. I mean, Goran Dragic has missed a lot of this year with a knee Mm -hmm. issue. Jeff Teague is getting towards that point. Conley's had a, a better year than I expected, but we'll see, you know, how how he ages. He's also being paid a ton of money. So eventually those teams, I mean, and we might have seen this already with Memphis, though who knows how long Mike Conley's gonna be there, with Delon Wright, that they might have done that. Though Delon Wright is twenty I think he's gonna be twenty seven next year. So yep. it's not as much of a developmental thing as a, you know, player who's still working his way in because he came into the league so old. But those spots are going to open up, and what is a bigger challenge in some ways for those teams, depending on how they see Tyus, how Minnesota sees Tyus Jones and a few of these other ones, is it's harder to get that next guy if your team is pretty decent or better than decent right now. And those point guards right now, with the exception of Memphis, are good enough to push these teams up a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, we can throw Indiana into that mix, in my opinion. Um, we can throw, I mean, realistically, I think we can probably uh, throw Philadelphia into that mix. Now, they're not necessarily always going to have a traditional point guard because Ben is there and Ben will always lead the break in transition. And, you know, it could help them, though, with the idea of what they drafted Markel Fultz to do and whether or not Jimmy Butler stays there in the summer. They could probably use like a potential lead guard. Um, you know, there, there are just so many different organizations around the entire league that could use one. And, um, we still haven't hit the point where there are enough good back, backup point guards. This is something that you and I have been talking about for years now. Uh, we're closing in, like we're getting closer to where there are enough good backup point guards. The influx over the last few years has helped, but. I don't think we're quite there yet to where it is no longer a market inefficiency. I do think that you can still get a really good backup point guard and have him play early. This could also lead teams down the path, which Boston has tried a few times in the last couple of years, of getting somebody from Europe. And ideally, that would obviously not be somebody who's draft eligible. It'd be somebody more like where Brad Wanamaker is. And yep. you, have to, you have to offer the money. I mean, because the guys who are good enough to play in Europe are going to have real offers there. But... That might be a, a greater option, especially in this year when so many teams are going to have cap space. I'm guessing that those players will come at a more reasonable price than the narrow NBA stock that already exists, and they'll be more ready to contribute than the 18 and 19 and 20 year olds that are coming in via the draft. Yeah, probably true. Uh, you know, I'll be interested to see how teams mine Europe going forward. This is something, again, I think you and I have talked about this pretty regularly over the last two years, and we've gotten something of an influx of guys from Europe, like Daniel Tice and Brad Wanamaker. The Celtics have obviously done it really well. Um, Mike James has come over. Who are some of the other names? Like Epe Udo has come over. Shane Larkin. Um, Shane Larkin, Milos Teodosic doesn't really fit the, you know, mold of a guy who played in college, went overseas, then came back, but, you know, similar deal in terms of mining Europe for a guy. So yeah, like, look, they're, those guys are going to come. 
unless you're shopping at the top of the market, like the Clippers did for Milos, um, you're probably going to be able to get them for the mini mid-level, I would say. No, not even the mini mid-level, probably the room exception, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's where... I think that's where you're probably thinking, hmm. Yeah. And then those guys, those guys are all just going to be better than their college counterparts. Oh, in, yeah. In terms of guys that you draft to be like a backup point guard year one. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I, it's very interesting in terms of the way the league is going. And, you know, all, all of this, and we can talk about this in regard to the Zion Williamson conversation. We can talk about this in regard to, you know, the way prospects are just developed generally in this country. So much of this depends on the way that the D league and the G league, really, I'm sorry, I called it the D league, the way that the G league ends up kind of becoming or not becoming a real developmental ground, because we are obviously getting closer to a 30 for 30 situation where every team does have a G league team. Um, we are coming closer to a circumstance where more and more teams are genuinely using it as a developmental ground. But there is still a lot more investment, in my opinion, that can happen that can make it an incredibly useful ground for potential NBA teams and for teams that are looking to evaluate prospects. So uh, there really is just so much to still try and distill from all of this and like there are so many the game the nba and basketball in general and the way that we develop prospects is rapidly changing in such a significant way that teams are getting creative and teams are adjusting on the fly in terms of the way that they utilize all of the avenues internationally and domestically in how they evaluate prospects and end up signing prospects a straight thought i just had but connected with this whole conversation is that even though I think the holdover crop is going to be weak because the rookies that have done well enough aren't going to play, this is going to be a crazy summer league year because of how this draft is looking, you know, like with guys that can go anywhere from 15 to 30, because it's only a few weeks after the draft, but we're going to get a much better sense of, of who belongs and who doesn't. And the uncertainty there, you know, obviously you'll have the, the, hopefully, you know, Zion and RJ and Morant and Reddish all play. But outside of those guys, we're going to be looking at these players thinking basically anything is possible with them. <laughs> that is 100% right. And it's going to totally change the dynamic of the league again. And. Oh boy, what a what an off season this is going to be from what is turning into just a mess of a draft that is going to be incredibly difficult to project to the free agency situation, which is already incredibly difficult to project, um, all the way through and the way that teams counter those free agency moves. I am I am extraordinarily excited to see where this goes. It's meaningfully different than 2016 for a variety of different reasons, one of them being, you know, that Kevin Durant is different from current Kevin Durant. But the volume of quality that can move around and the team-by-team -team volatility this year is bananas. Like, we knew the Warriors were going to be really good, whether they got Kevin Durant or not. And who knows, maybe they would have gotten Gordon Hayward if Kevin Durant had said no. That's an interesting thing that I've been floating in the back of my mind for a while now. But all that said, this year, think about the Knicks 
think about the Clippers at the, you know, kind of the, the extreme volatility end, but then also the ripple effects that the fact that these players who are intensely great players on really good teams are going to have if any of them leave. You know, Kem Durant leaves the Warriors, they're a meaningfully worse team. There's no way they can replace him. Kyrie to the Celtics, same basic thing. You know, if he goes to the Knicks, something else, they can't really replace him. Kawhi is a little bit different just because the Raptors might just do a full-on pivot. They might. We don't know if that for sure. But there is so much variance with, off the top of my head, we're talking about almost half the league. And that is insane. Well, yeah, you run through the Warriors can go from by far and away, like no questions asked, like the team that's going to win the title to merely a title contender next year uh, if Kevin Durant leaves. And I mean, realistically, we should probably throw Clay Thompson into this as well. Like Clay is a free agent. Um, you know, it does seem like he's probably going to stay like that's probably the favored outcome. Right. But we don't know that. Yeah, I I fully expect him to come back. I mean, there could be something that takes him away. There are going to be good situations that can make an offer. I I, I think as long as the Warriors don't lowball him, I think he'll be back. But you don't know that for sure. And years and years ago, and since this is Real GM Radio, it's another reason to bring it up. I wrote a piece for Real GM called The Third Contract. And the whole conceit of that, maybe I'll do a rewrite of it now with everything that we've learned over the last, I think I wrote that in the context of Kevin Love, so it's been a while, is the reason why the third contract is so compelling is because that's when you find out what a player really values. Now, it's a little bit different in certain circumstances. Kevin Durant had his earlier because of the way they structured the opt-outs and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But because that's when a player has true agency. First contract, that's where you get drafted. Second contract, that's you know, you didn't have any control over that decision. And then the third one, you're still, you know, prime or prime adjacent, depending on when you came into the league, maybe even pre-prime if you came in really young. And that's your best shot of saying, this is what I want most. And I am a firm supporter and players using that to do whatever they want. You know, if you want to play in the sunshine, play in the sunshine. If you want to make all the money you can, by all means. And so for guys like Kyrie and Kawhi and I mean, Durant's done it once, but Durant's going to get to do it again. Clay Thompson, this is his first real opportunity at an unrestricted free agency. We're going to find out what they want. And what's so different about this class, and another comparison with 2016 is outside of Kevin Durant, a lot of the guys in that class weren't that good. So there were a lot, there were a lot of, there's a lot of bad money from that year. These are all NBA players for by and large, you know, at the top end of this class. And that's also yeah. going to have some really interesting effects. So what do they want? And maybe it's they want to stay on a championship contender. Maybe they want to play in a big market. Maybe they want to try to thread the needle and do both. And I love that process, even though it makes my job harder. That's why I enjoy my job being hard. And like, you know, I'm going to be writing off-season previews, and, and I've already been doing a lot of stuff for The Athletic on this class. But the thing that I'm trying to hammer home to people is just how much is on the table. Yeah, I mean, just look at the Atlantic Division. Like, the Atlantic Division is the funniest thing in the world to me because Toronto could go from continuing to be a 55-win NBA Finals contender all the way to total full-scale rebuild. The 76ers could go from legit NBA Finals contender, maybe even NBA Championship contender next season, all the way down to something that's just like a playoff team. The Celtics, you know, again, probably can go from legit NBA Finals title contender to just a playoff team. The Nets can go from, you know, 500 team 
If they sign like real free agents, that team could be a contender at the top of the Eastern Conference. The Knicks, if they end up with number one and sign two free agents and, you know, end up trading number one for Anthony Davis, like they are a legit title contender next season. There is no limit to how insane the possibilities are this offseason. It is uh, like just chaos theory right now. That's what it is. It's just total chaos theory. Well, and, and you could talk about it in terms of the, the major markets and those teams. And, and there's plenty of reason to because of the ceilings involved and those teams, you know, title contenders. But also think about teams like the Pacers and the Jazz. Very good teams that have been very successful. Good organizations have made some big bets that have largely worked out. They each have a lot of space, but they also have a lot of pending free agents. So how does Utah handle Rubio and Favors? How does... Indiana handle basically every single person in their starting, you know, in their rotation other than Sabonis, Miles Turner, and Victor Oladipo being a free agent. Unrestricted. All of them unrestricted. It's going to be phenomenal with basically half the league, potentially more than half the league, hitting free agency. And it's not just like the bottom half. It's a lot of really good players and then players in the middle. And so who gets paid, who doesn't? And another guy you brought up the Atlantic is, what the hell does Danny Green do? Like, Danny Green's having this wonderful season for Toronto, and he's probably not going to be super high on anybody's list, but a guy who could help a lot of different teams and who will have more salary volatility than the top-end players for sure. And we'll see what he wants. He's played on really good organizations his entire career, and he took less, it sounds like, to be a part of the San Antonio Spurs, who ended up, you know, trading him as a part of the big DeRozan-Kawhi Leonard deal. So those sorts of guys as well are going to end up moving the needle a lot, even if the first four days are really just talking about stars. Yeah, I mean, like Danny Green, for instance, like... Danny Green is a full mid-level player, probably, right? Like, I don't think he gets more than that. Just I think he could. I mean, it depends. It depends on which teams I mean, have space and which teams have space and when. Yeah, and he'll be thirty-two. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't see him getting much more than that. Necessarily. I love, I love his game so much, and if, on the right team, he would be a wonderful fit. But again, how many of those teams have space? Like yeah, that, and like. By the way, full mid level this summer is what? It starts at nine point two, so it's probably yeah, you could put like it at like 40, four 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 forty two, four forty three, something in that range. Yeah, so that's a lot of money. Like that, that's a big month. That's a big deal yeah, for Danny that's Green. About, that's about the kind of money he got last time. Yeah, and I don't think he gets four years. I think he probably gets like two sure. plus an option or something. Something like that. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's two plus an option for twelve million a year or something like that. But um, yeah, his deal, his is fascinating. Like you can you can like pick and choose guys on rosters every single which way like you know patrick beverly is an interesting one is is this this is the year where beverly's a free agent right yeah well and also the guys who were maybe surprising all-stars i mean at least surprising based on where we started the season nick vucevic and d'angelo russell both of those guys i mean you can make an argument that they're going to make a ton of money because they've had very good seasons and they're like very well liked by their current teams but then you could also see it as a circumstance where in, v- in Vooch's position, it's it's because he's a center, and in D'Angelo Russell's, it's the match rights and teams just not really wanting to mess with it, where the market evaporates a little bit for them. And whether that leads to them returning to their current teams or going somewhere else is another big question. I mean, Russell has to get the max from someone, right? Orlando not having as much financial flexibility really, really hurts him, but... I mean, considering he's still so young and made the All-Star team, I, I am not the biggest D'Angelo Russell believer. I think that people who listen to my material probably know that. But the success that he's had this year, I I, I mean, that seems like the most likely outcome here. But I'm not going to say it's a guarantee just because how many teams are there that are sitting there going, we need a point guard? Much less, we need a point guard and he's the point guard. 
And the answer is not that many. Isn't the easy answer here Indiana? Depending on how they see Oladipo. I mean, I, I don't know. It, I think they want the ball in Oladipo's hands more than what you would, I, than ideally with D'Angelo Russell. But it's very possible that Pritchard sees it differently. But I, I think that you can just kind of share the ball with both those guys like really yeah. well. I actually think that that pairing works incredibly well. Uh, you obviously stagger their minutes a little bit, let them run the show at different times. And, you know, Victor can really help D'Angelo's uh, defensive deficiencies a little bit. Uh, I love, I love that idea a lot. Like, I think that is, and like D'Angelo's a Louisville kid. So you put him back in the general-ish area of the country. I, I think that, that is like, if I'm Indiana, like he's one of my top priorities, I think, to grow with their core. There's definitely an option there. And then when we're going through these teams that aren't getting as much discussion, Dallas is fascinating because yeah. I had been penciling in them as being one of the landing points for one of the centers. I mean, this is a class that has a lot of centers in it for a long time, whether that was Vu or DeMarcus Cousins or somebody else. And then they trade for Kristaps Porzingis. And my, uh, I, I think they could play Porzingis at the fours, certainly. But I think he makes the most sense of the five. I think Carlisle has an understanding of how he could work there. But they have, you know, max space or, or close to it. And now with the structure of their, you know, low cap holds for Maxi Kleba and Dorian Finney-Smith, if they're good, those guys are staying and everything else, it seems like their MO is going to be best player we can get in 2019. And then we're just going to roll with that team for three to four years. And that's a huge, huge thing for how good Luca has been this year. Yeah. <laughs> if I was a team that didn't necessarily have full cap space or like didn't think I was going to use full cap space early in free agency, I would try and steal Maxi Kleba. Like Barry, he would be one of my like, Hey, let's go get this guy. Dallas probably wants to keep their max cap space open. They probably aren't as willing to, uh, you know, go over the top to sign him. Let's give him like six or seven million a year. I, I think that that is something that, uh, does Dallas, does Dallas really want to eat into their cap space by going six to seven mil, like on July 1st for Maxi Kleba? I don't know. I don't know that that's something that happens. I really like Kleba too. Being arenas limited is going to be a challenge there for for certain teams, and because the opportunity cost of okay, we're going after Kleba, Dallas. It doesn't seem like they're good enough at this stage where you're sitting there going, oh, we need to put some pain into them, you know, like that sort of thing. But maybe a team just really likes Kleba. But part of why Kleba is so interesting is actually playing him at center or something center-ish. And then you get into positional scarcity and all those sorts of arguments. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the the players on kind of the mid-level exception or less area, they're going to have to wait. But this is not the same as as last summer when basically all those guys got got the screws put to them. Like this is not going to be the same type of offseason. But that is, but some of those guys absolutely are not going to get paid. Like that's the way this is going to work. And so... I, my, I haven't written this yet. I'm going to, but one of the fascinating, important parts of this offseason is going to be, I think we're going to see massive disparities in terms of how similar quality players get paid. And it's going to be who strikes early, who, who, who misses out and ends up signing late, all those sorts of things. And that isn't, you know, there could be certain circumstances where like one team just looks like a, 
like a rose. They, they come out smelling like a rose because they waited out and a bunch of guys were cheap. Like uh, an example of this would be like all the guys that the Nets got for the minimum this year. You know, I, granted, Travion Graham's been hurt a lot of the year, so he hasn't been great. But I mean, Napier for the minimum with a non-guaranteed second year, that looks really good compared to what some other guys got. We're going to see those sorts of deals this year where, you know, two guys who I probably don't have far apart on my free agent rankings get like 10, 10 million plus a year different in salary. Yes, I think that that is true. I think that the players that strike early this summer are going to be much better off. Uh, I would not go crazy in terms of like trying to haggle. Uh, I, I think that really the teams that strike earlier or the players that strike earlier are the ones that are going to be way paid well. Is there anything else? Let's let's. I, uh, we're not turning to the draft because it's just quickly. Is there anything else that you think is at this stage in the process? You know, I, I'm guessing the next time we'll record will probably be sometime around the call it, the conference tournament, the NCAA tournament. Anything people should keep an eye on or be thinking about between now and then? Huh, that's a good question. Um, Darius Garland signed with Clutch yesterday. That's an interesting one. Um, let's see what else. What else is interesting here? Just watching Nasir Little and Romeo Langford and like these guys that we think are probably lottery picks that have struggled a little bit this season in one way or another. And I don't mean to compare Romeo's struggles to Nasir's because they're just on totally different planes in terms of how they've produced this year. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I want to see these guys produce as much as they can and as well as they can. Uh, you look at Lugans Dort hit like kind of a wall midway through the year, really struggled with his efficiency. He's now kind of bounced back a little bit. He seems to be uh, kind of back to where he's figured out how to get downhill again, again, how to use his strength, how to use the threat of a jump shot that doesn't really exist yet. That's kind of interesting. Um, and generally just the older guys, because like, look, there are going to be older players that get selected in this draft in like the bottom 10 picks of the first round. Which of those guys step up? Which of those guys really establish themselves as late first round picks? Carson Edwards, Jalen McDaniels, Ty Jerome, Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield, uh, Jordan Poole at Michigan. I love Jordan Poole at Michigan. Um, I don't think nearly enough people are talking about him. I think he's like a legit borderline top 30 prospect. He is legit very good. And I want to see how guys like that perform on the biggest stage. It is going to be a really impactful, you know, month, month plus of time. And I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast, which he puts out regularly, multiple times per week. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him. Love his work. Really excited about this project. I've not been in- involved with it, like helping him, but I've been aware of it for a little while now. Just we've been talking about other stuff. And he's like, oh man, I'm working on this. And it, so- it sounded really cool. And so I guess you could say maybe provided some moral support, but not that he needed it. But really excited to, to see where that goes and, and the finished products of it are going to be really cool. I'm happy he got to take this idea from concept to product. And I'm, I'm excited to see how it turns out. Lots of great stuff for college basketball, for the draft, and of course for the NBA as well. That presumably is going to be where this podcast goes over the next few weeks. Presumably Sam and I will do another episode around the NCAA tournament, whether it's slightly before, will depend on his own availability, which of course is very 
limited at that point because he's doing so many other things. Don't know exactly what next week's episode will be, but there will be something, obviously. There always is. And I'm really excited to see where the league goes over the next couple weeks. There's so much learning. I mean, I was watching the games on Friday and seeing how these teams are interacting, how the players looked, and of course you also have the rust and everything like that from the All-Star break. So a lot to take in, a lot to learn, and I'm very excited about all of that. You can also, of course, listen to the Dunked On podcast, which I do with Nate Duncan. We released an episode on Thursday night. We'll also do one on Sunday night, and then, you know, pretty much a normal schedule now. Moving forward as we get into the real stretch run, and my written work is primarily at The Athletic. You can also check out that third contract piece I wrote for Real GM that should still be up. I I think if you search the right terms, you should be able to find it pretty easily. And if you want to support this show, there are lots of great ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If it's not, I understand. But if you want to be super awesome in that circumstance, you can actually review both places. You can do that. And it's basically just to make sure that more people see the show because the more positive reviews there are that using the algorithms that moves it up higher, more eyeballs, all that kind of stuff. Word of mouth, also incredibly useful, much appreciated. And subscribing, downloading every episode. I don't usually release on the weekends, but that's when Sam was available and that's when we did it. So that another great example of why I encourage people to do that. Of course, the most important thing with this show and any other that has them is to check out our advertisers, betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. Art of Sport, use the Real GM promo code for half off their trial kit, which is really cool, lots of great stuff in it, and that also gives you free shipping on it, and TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do that, and if you take the time to write it, I take the time to read it. I'm not great at responding, but they go directly into a thing, and I read them, most of them, honestly, within 6 to 12 hours, and if I have the capacity to do a thoughtful response, I will. If I don't, then sometimes I don't. I apologize for that, but I do read it. It's very important to me. We'll see where the show goes next week. Obviously, a lot going on, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.